This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. I hope that over the last 14 weeks that God has grown in each of our lives, myself included, has grown each of us for a greater love for the gathered church. Because we as Americans, we are really, really spoiled. We can't, I mean, we have never had to really face any kind of uh, persecution as far as not being allowed to gather together for worship. And so I think for the last 14 weeks, we've gotten just a small taste and it's not close. So I don't want to minimize anything that's going around, uh, going on around the world and in the global church. But in just a small way, I believe we've gotten a taste of what it's been to be like to be a brother or sister in a country where maybe the government doesn't allow them to gather to worship, or perhaps they are a believer and there's no other believers around them. And so they don't have this special privilege that you and I have to regularly gather as brothers and sisters in Christ and make much of Jesus. Uh, This is a very, very real privilege. And so I hope over the last three months, that your love for the gathered church has um, really grown and your appreciation for it. Because really, when you look at what's going on around the world in the church, uh, this is a really rare and special thing that we're doing this morning. And so I hope and pray that we do not lose sight of that, and nor will we ever again. I hope this has changed us the last three, three months. I mean, who knows? We may be back in that same situation uh, this fall or winter. If there's another spike, we, we could be back in that situation. So as, as long as we can gather, and I never thought we'd ever say that in the United States, But as long as we can gather together, let's appreciate just what a sacred and special thing this is as we worship together. And as we're going to talk about here in just a minute, that the presence of Christ is here with us. And that is an amazing, special thing. So let's not lose sight of that. Starting next week, we're going to start a new sermon series on the book of James. We're going to walk through the, the book of James together, a very uh, practical book. I'm looking uh, forward to that. But over the last few months, even before uh, COVID, God has been taking me uh, personally on a journey of instruction. It all really started um, back in December. My grandfather uh, passed away. And um, so during his memorial service, there is a, uh, there's a, a lot of Catholic side of my family. And so when talking with some of my Catholic family, uh, I realized just what a precious um, thing the Lord's Supper is to them. And I'll explain why here in just a minute and why, why it's so central to when um, our Catholic friends um, get together and worship, why it's, it's such a special thing to them. And I, just in talking to them, obviously we disagree. As Protestants, we disagree on uh, what the meaning and what happens during the Lord's Supper. But what I walked away from some of that conversation and some from neighbors and talking with neighbors of mine, uh, just because I've been desperate to talk to people, um, uh, in, in, my, in my subdivision that are, are Catholic and just talking about like the meaning of the Lord's Supper and, and communion, one thing I've realized is that we as Protestants, we can at times, not always, 
we can at times not hold up and honor the Lord's Supper like we should. Now, it's not a means of grace, and we do not worship uh, communion, but it's still a very important and precious thing uh, for worship. And sometimes we as Protestants, we just kind of like, oh, it's just symbolism when we go about our business. And it's, it's much deeper, it's much richer than that, and it's very, very important. So we're going to talk about uh, uh, communion today. So if you have a Bible, I'm just going to warn you right now, okay? We're going to move around to a few different passages this morning, so um, get ready for that. Um, we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, so you can look at Acts chapter 2. Um, and if you want to jump ahead just to save yourself some work, if you want to work smarter, not harder this morning, um, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and just kind of put your ribbon there, because we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 a lot, but we're going to start with Acts chapter 2, and starting there. So turn to Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts is a fascinating book because we see the establishment of the, uh, the church, this, this organism, this not necessarily organization, but this, this body that Jesus institutes in Acts chapter 2. When we open up to the first part of Acts, you see Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's told his disciples, go and make disciples of all na- nations. He's told them to, that they will be his witnesses in um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they do that and they all kind of gather in Jerusalem And they're kind of thinking, what's next? Well, then in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit um, descends on these believers, and uh, Peter preaches a sermon. And as he preaches a sermon, instantly, instantly, thousands of people, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, you can look at it there, it says, after Peter preaches this sermon and thousands of people come to know Christ, 3,000 to, to uh, be exact, exact, it says those who accepted his message, talking about what Peter was preaching, those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Okay, you want to talk about instantaneous church growth. They went from in a span of just a very short period of time, 24 hours, they went from a gathering of about 100 people in Jerusalem to 3,000. That sounds like a pastoral nightmare to me, the logistics of that. And that's what we see in the establishment of deacon ministry and taking care of widows in the church. I mean, you can imagine the scrambling uh, that they had to take on because they and instantly this, the early church went from 100 to 3,000 overnight. And you can imagine the poor apostles were just kind of pulling their hair out. What are we going to do? But we get a little bit of an inside look of what the early church, as they just got established, what their worship looked like. So look at verse 42. It says this. They, talking about the early church, these 3,000 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, I'm reading out of the Christian Standard uh, Bible. You may have another translation in front of you, and that's good. But that first phrase is, they devoted themselves. What does that word devoted mean? 
What is it? If you're devoted to something, it means you're holding fast to something. You may love something. If you're, if you're married and you have a spouse, hopefully you're devoted to your spouse. You love your spouse. You're devoted. You're dedicated. Well, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean they were sh- shaking hands or uh, giving virtual fist bumps during their own pandemic. No, the, the fellowship means that they had a genuine spiritual care and concern to one another. It says they were devoted to prayer. And we talked about prayer this spring. That seems, seems like three years ago, but we talked about this spring about prayer. So they were devoted to prayer. But it says there, the next to last item that Luke lists here in Acts, it says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, we could interpret that as they just got together and had meals together, right? Like we're in a Baptist church, that's automatically how we're going to interpret that, right? Like they got together and they had a potluck. They broke bread, they sat down to eat, right? It's not what this means, You heard Pastor Jason read John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about himself being the bread, and we're going to talk about this, but the breaking of bread was a symbol of the body of Christ being broken. And so as we understand that, what we see in Acts chapter 2, that the early church was devoted to the breaking of bread or devoted to the Lord's Supper, to communion. It was very, very important to them. And so what we're seeing here is it is a key piece of their worship. This is not something that they're doing quarterly. We don't even doesn't say how, long, how, how often they're doing it. So uh, I don't want to take any kind of liberties that shouldn't be there. But if they're devoted to it, they were doing it a lot. I can promise you that. Now, whatever, whatever that was every week, every other week, we don't know. But they were devoted to it. It was very, very important to their gathering together of worship. It was important to them. So, as we look back at our rich history of the church, should we not, too, be devoted to the breaking of bread? Should not the Lord's Supper be really, really important to us. You see, honestly, in our flavor of Christianity, the Lord's Supper is really not taken like that seriously. I don't think anyone's like flippant about it or disrespectful about it. It's just kind of like, oh shoot, it's, it's, you know, that's how it was when I was a youth pastor in Birmingham. The church I was at is like, oh shoot, it's, it's the quarter of the month. We, We need to do this. I think when we see that the early church was devoted to it, it wasn't a flippant thing. It wasn't something that they just did. It was really, really important. We're going to see why. But before we do, I want us to get, get familiar and understand the background of communion and the history of redemption. Remember, we talk a lot about around here the, the story of redemption, the uh, redemptive history. We can look from Genesis to Revelation. There's a common thread throughout all of Scripture, the gospel. We see that, and we see a background of communion in the history of redemption. So turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Let's see who started this, uh, this, this practice of the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, and I think it's a pretty good uh, reason and, and good founder of the Lord's Supper, and that was our Lord Jesus, the G- Jesus Christ. 
This was right before Jesus was going to go to the cross and, and die for the sins of the world. The, the disciples are gathered together, and they're sitting there at that last supper, that meal. And it says in verse 26, look at it with me of Matthew 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this, this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here Jesus is trying to teach his disciples an object lesson, right? Like if you've been in vacation Bible school or if you've served in children's ministry, a lot of times with our kids, we use object lessons. Well, Jesus was taking wine and bread to teach an object lesson. What was he, about, what was he teaching his, his disciples? This is what's about to happen. He's giving them kind of a clue. Here's what's about to happen. My body is going to be broken for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. So Jesus is giving them a piece, an idea of what's going to go on. But we have a little bit of uh, Old Testament. Now, they, it, what, the meaning wasn't the same, but we see kind of a, a, a picture of this in the Old Testament. Paul even added, we'll turn over here in a minute, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're going to see a little bit of background to this ceremony to this meal in the Old Testament. So turn over to Exodus chapter 24. Now, this is not the Lord's Supper, but we see even God's covenant people, Israel, they had special suppers, they had special feasts, and they would eat and drink in the presence of God in the Old Covenant. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 9, it says, Then Moses went with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven the elders of Israel's, el of, of, uh, Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israel nobles. They saw him, they ate, and they drank. And so Moses and these 70 elders of Israel, they eat and drink before the Lord. Now I'll tune over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. In verse 23, it says in Deuteronomy 14, verse 23, it says, you are to eat a tenth of your grain, new wine and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. Now skip down to verse 26. You may have spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. You are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. And so even in this covenant people, Israel, God establishes a time for them to eat and drink before him. Then in the new covenant, we see a new feast, a new supper established for something. A supper in the New Testament that Jesus establishes in Matthew chapter 26 that was supposed to be an intimate act of worship. And that is the Lord's Supper. So now that we have a little bit of background 
on the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about what does it mean, okay? That's the big question, and that's been debated for centuries. What does the Lord's Supper mean? Now, to my understanding of Scripture, that's what I'm going to be sharing. Now, I have a, I have a lot of respect for people that may differ on uh, what the Lord's Supper may mean. I think they're wrong, but like I still have a lot of respect for them. So I don't want us to get caught up in uh, mean, nasty, theological uh, debates, but we want our standing and our understanding of Scripture to come from Scripture, and our understanding and meaning of the Lord's Supper to come from Scripture. So I'm going to do my best this morning to show us uh, from Scripture, what does the meaning of the Lord's Supper, right? It says, so the first thing, if you want to write this down somewhere, sorry, we don't have worship guides for you, but the, the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the first thing it means is Christ's death. It's a picture of the death of Christ. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we symbolize the death of Christ because uh, our actions give a picture of His death for us. When the bread is broken, now we're going to take communion together here in just a minute. When the bread is broken, I'm not going to actually break a piece of bread. It's already broken for you in your container there. When the bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. And when the cup is poured out, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. Jesus said that. We just saw that in Matthew chapter 26. So there's a meaning that symbolizes the, the Christ's death. Second, it also proclaims Christ's death. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I told you we're going to get over there. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think this is a really cool part of communion and Lord's Supper that sometimes we miss. I know I've missed it. That I think many of us, we have a, if you've been in church for a while, and if you haven't, that's okay. But if you're familiar with church and, and our uh, tradition, you understand that we, we know that the, that the elements symbolize the, the, the blood and body of Christ. But a piece that I've missed is that we also, we don't just symbolize the death of Christ when we take communion. We are proclaiming the death of Christ. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. Paul writes, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the club, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take communion in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to ourselves, this is what Christ has done for me. But even more, why it's not just proclaiming it to ourselves, we are proclaiming it to each other of this is the blood and body of Christ. This was his his body that was broken for us. This was his blood that was poured out for the, the removal of our sin. We're proclaiming that to each other. And what are, when we do this, and we're going to do this here in just a minute, when we do this, what we are, when we see each other's brothers and sisters taking the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we are preaching the gospel to each other. We are reminding each other of the gospel, that because of our sin, we are separated from God, and we needed a Messiah, we needed a rescuer to come and die on the cross for our sins, for his body to be broken, for his blood to be poured out, for our salvation, for our righteousness, that we need that. And so when we take it here in just a moment, and when we see each other take it, we are proclaiming to each other, this is the gospel. And then when we take it, 
we're also proclaiming the gospel to the world. Because let's be honest, all right, let's all just take off our church-going glasses for just a minute. If you would have never, if we would have never seen this done before, like let's say you, we, we walk in here and you've never seen anything like this before, you would think this is really strange, right? Even if you, you hear what uh, in John chapter 6 that we heard read just a few minutes ago, like that's a really like, is this cannibalism? Like what in the world is going on? Like this is a cult, is this the village people? Like what is happening here? This is a really strange ceremony. But as we, as we take communion and unbelievers see that, it is an opportunity for us to use an object lesson just as Jesus did with his own disciples and for us to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. So when we take communion, we are proclaiming Christ's death. We are participating in Christ's death, but we are also proclaiming his death. Second of all, it represents and symbolizes our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. Let me say that again in case you want to write it down. Our participation in communion symbolizes the benefits of Christ's death in our life. And Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26, Jesus established that. And when we take communion, as we individually reach out and take the cup for ourselves, now I'm not going to be serving it to you. You're going to be serving it to yourself, but just work with me here. As you take the cup for yourself, each one of us, by our action, we are proclaiming the death of Christ. We are participating in the death of Christ, but we are also proclaiming, I am taking the Christ's death, the benefits of it, for myself. Now, again, this is not, if we're not careful, we can get confused. This is not us literally taking the benefits of Christ's death to ourselves. It's symbolizing it. As we believe in the death and, uh, death and resurrection of Christ, and we are then redeemed through that belief, that is us saying, I am taking the benefits of Christ's death for myself. I kind of look at it like this. Now, this illustration I'm going to give is going to break down, so don't hold me to it completely. But hopefully you take some kind of vitamin. We all have our different multivitamins. I'm trying to be good about that, trying to be healthy, whatever. And so I'm taking these multivitamins, and I'm taking that, why? To benefit my physical body. As we take of the Lord's Supper, it is a symbol, it is a picture of us taking the benefits of Christ's death for ourselves that saves our souls. Third of all, we see spiritual nourishment. The Lord's Supper uh, symbolizes and means the picture of spiritual nourishment. Turn over to John chapter 6. Hold your finger again in 1 Corinthians, but turn over to John chapter 6. This is the passage that uh, Jason read just a minute ago. And this is a really, again, if you're not familiar to church at all, like this would be, this is a very difficult thing to wrap our minds around. And even people then, they, they left Jesus because of this teaching. It was a hard teaching. But look at John chapter 6, verse 53. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors 
ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, if we're not careful, we could take this very, very literally and say, well, this is a sign of cannibalism for us to uh, literally eat the blood and body of Christ for us to take that on for uh, our salvation. But again, Jesus constantly used metaphors and word pictures to teach spiritual truth. But as we take the Lord's Supper and we see that it symbolizes spiritual nourishment, what is teaching us in this object lesson is just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper gives nourishment to us. Now, there's not a lot of nourishment here, okay? Don't count this as lunch because you're going to be hungry afterwards. But it does nourish us in some capacity. But it pictures the fact that there is spiritual nourishment and refreshment that Christ is giving to our souls. Now, you've heard me say a few times, Adam, you're saying that this is not literally the blood and body of Christ. Now, I have some friends of different Christian traditions that believe that. So why don't we believe that? Or Adam, why does Adam not believe that? Again, they don't believe this for me, but this they want this to be scripture, okay? This is not literally the blood and body of Christ. Because we see a consistent pattern of Jesus throughout the Gospels using metaphors to describe himself. All right? In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door or I am the gate. You come through me to get salvation. Now, does that mean that Jesus is literally a door? All right? If we were going to take that Jesus was literally a door, that door right back there, that could be Jesus. And maybe that door could be Jesus. No, that's not what Jesus is teaching at all. When Jesus says, I am the door, I am the gate. What he is saying in John chapter 10, he says, you have to go through me for salvation. Just like you go through a door to enter a room, you have to go through Jesus to receive salvation. Jesus is not literally a door. We also see Jesus say in John chapter 15, I love John chapter 15, but in John, 50, John chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus tells his, his disciples, I am the true vine. Now, does Jesus mean that he is literally a vine or a tree? No, he's using a word picture to say that your salvation, your stability in your life, it goes through me because Jesus went on and says, I am the true vine. You are the branches and without me, you can what? Do nothing. So Jesus is using a word picture there to describe to, him, uh, to, describe to his disciples and followers just more about his character and who he was. And so in the same way, when Jesus says in John chapter 6 or in, or in Matthew 26, this is my body, he means it in a symbolic way, not in an actual, literal, physical way. Now, you heard me mention our Catholic friends. They believe it's literally the blood and body of Christ. But I think, do believe that by Scripture, I'm not meaning to call out Catholics, but as we look at Scripture and we see a consistent pattern, a consistent habit of Jesus to use different word pictures to describe himself and who he was as the Messiah, and this is just another one. All right, number four, last one. What does it mean for the Lord's Supper? Well, four, it means the unity of believers. And now, 
all of these symbolisms and pictures is a really, uh, are, are all terrific, but this is just my, my personal favorite. Because you hear churches all the time say, well, we want to have unity. We want to do things together, and that's good. Well, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a picture, is a symbol of the unity of believers. Because look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn over there with me. We're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and look at verse 17. It says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. What does this mean? What's Paul writing here in 1 Corinthians 10? We're doing this together. People that are diverse in age, race, gender. We are a very diverse group. We're from, many of us grew up in different parts of the country. We're a very diverse group. But when we come together to take the Lord's Supper and to remember what Christ has done for us to purchase our salvation, we are unified together in doing that. So we see the unity of believers. Now, there's one more question that we must answer ourselves before we take of the Lord's Supper. Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who is allowed? Like, who should take that? All right, well, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the last time you'll have to turn back over there, okay? I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at verse 29. It says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drink judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This passage of Scripture we're going to walk through, it makes me nervous. As a pastor, it really makes me nervous. Because what Paul is teaching that if we do not qualify to participate in the Lord's Supper, then there can be some pretty extreme consequences for that. So first of all, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? First of all, those who believe in Jesus Christ. I do not see, I do not see any rational or logical way of someone who is an unbeliever to take of the Lord's Supper. It just can't happen. Because if you do not believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you cannot believe in the symbol, uh, symbolism of it and the remembrance of it. So that's like oil and water that can't mix, that can't happen. And then second of all, who should participate in the Lord's Supper is those who have been self-examined. Because look at verse 27, look up a few verses, it says this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. What's Paul saying here in verse 27? He says, if a person takes of the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, an unworthy manner, what does that mean? A cheap view, having sin in our lives, having sinned against another brother or sister, having a, a, a wrong relationship with God where we're not in sync with, with the Lord. It says, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body. Now, is, it, is he talking about our physical bodies? 
He's not talking about our physical body. He's talking about the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ? It's the church. So if we were to take of the Lord's Supper flippantly or disrespectfully or take it with sin in our lives, we are sinning, first of all, against the church, against each other. You see, there's some built-in accountability there. We are accountable to one another as we take the Lord's Supper. So we're, we would be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. If we take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, what we are saying is that the death of Christ is cheap. You realize that? In fact, every time we sin, we are saying that the death of Christ on the cross was cheap. But as you and I know, and Scripture teaches, the death of Christ was an incredible, valuable, precious thing. Why? Because it gave us salvation. We are made righteous through the death of Christ. Our broken relationship with God is reconciled because of the death of Christ. And you want to talk about though the most valuable thing we could ever have. That is the death of Christ. And so we don't want to cheapen it by taking it in an unworthy manner. Paul goes on to write in verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. Faith family, this is a warning that what we are about to do here in just a few minutes of taking the Lord's Supper is a very serious, very important part of our faith. And it should not be taken lightly. It should not be taken flippantly. And if there is a temptation there to take it flippantly, or to take it in an unworthy manner, let me, to, let me encourage you and to plead with you to not do so. Now, if we read these warnings, part of me when I read this, I'm like, why would I ever take the Lord's Supper? I mean, I could have unknown sin in my life, you know, like I have a, I have a habit of sinning. Like, why would I ever do this? Like, this is a, it's a judgment on myself. Like, I'm not going to do this. No way right? Like there's part of our brains, I think that works that way. I'm not taking the Lord's Supper because I do not want, you know, I don't know, not a lightning bolt, but like I don't want judgment to come down on me. So I'm, there's no way I'm doing this. I believe that one of the reasons why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and then the command is given in 1 Corinthians 11 to self-examine is this is a time for us to confess sin to the Lord, to make sin right with Him, to confess our sin, as James says, one to another, and to confess our sin to maybe a brother or sister that we may have offended. And so I believe that one of the reasons why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, yes, to symbolize and remember what he did, but also to be, to be, to be used as a means of discipline in our lives, to reveal sin in our lives as a tool to be used to make sure that we are in right relationship with God, that we are in right relationship with one another. 
So we're going to move into a time now as Roxanne comes to the piano. We've seen the meaning of the Lord's Supper. We've talked a little about it. And listen, like, we could spend a lot longer talking about this. We've seen what it, what it means. We've seen who should participate in the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to do that here in just a minute. But as Roxanne plays, I want to encourage you to take some time for self-examination. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out maybe some blind spots in your life that maybe you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize this in my life. And as the Holy Spirit reveals in our lives the sin in our lives, I would encourage us to just right there in this private moment of in your seat to just confess it to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Maybe as we take this time of self-examination and confession, maybe the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us, maybe we've offended another brother or sister, and we need to make that right. Let me encourage you to, to make that right with that brother or sister. I've, if there's someone in this room, take a moment just to slip over and just, you know, at a socially distanced place, ask for forgiveness there and, and, and confess that sin to them. Maybe if you need to step out, I've seen people do it. If you need to step out and grab your phone and make a quick phone call and ask for forgiveness and confess that sin to someone you've offended, let me encourage you to do that. Just take that time. You can step out in the hallway. There's places for you to do that. But what we're about to do this taking of communion, this ceremony as we remember the death of Christ that has given us salvation, it's given us eternal security. We want to be sure we do this in a manner that is worthy of what Christ has done for us because He paid such a high cost for our salvation. We want to do this in a way that, that reflects that. And so let's take a few minutes to to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to our lives sin, to confess our sin to the, to the Lord and, and to others that we may have offended. Jesus, thank you for paying such an incredible high price for our sin. You gave everything for us. And so we thank you for that. But Jesus, more than thanking you for that, we worship you for that sacrifice you've made. And so I pray that as we take of 
this ordinance that you instituted, I pray that you would use it in our lives to impress upon our hearts what you did on the cross for us and that you would use it to motivate us to holy living. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Thank you.